Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. And sometimes that frontier is at a conference. Like last weekend, where over a thousand developers, founders, builders, and investors attended the Starkware sessions in Tel Aviv in order to participate in growing the StarkNet ecosystem. This is Bankless's Starkware session series, which are nine bite-sized episodes interviewing the founders, builders, and ecosystem developers of StarkNet. Every once in a while in the crypto world, a conference happens, but not everyone is available to attend. Don't worry. Bankless has your back because I go to basically every conference that's out on the frontier and I bring an entire podcast studio in tow with me in order to make sure that the Bankless Nation stays on the frontier of what's happening in crypto. In this interview, we are talking to Sismo and Sismo is an identity tooling set to help express your identity across all of your Ethereum addresses. Sismo lets you connect all of your Ethereum addresses, whether you have your board apes in one address, your crypto punks in another address, or your governance tokens in a third address. Sismo lets you prove what you have in your wallet or what you've done in your wallet to some sort of third party, some sort of web app, some anything that's trying to access your identity, but it lets you keep yourself private in the process. So say, for example, you are trying to get into this party that is token gated by uh, board apes but you don't want to dox your address to that website. Sismo allows you to do a ZK proof of the state of your address to prove to anyone about the credentials that you might have in that wallet without having to dox your wallets. Uh, and it's also useful for combining all of your identities across all of your wallets that you may use so that you can express all of the access that you have across all of your wallets all at once without having to dox these things together. The use cases for this are endless, and so we go into all of these details and more in this interview with Sismo. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Welcome, Bankless Nation, back to the Starkware Sessions. We are on day two, and I have completely lost my voice talking to everyone here over in Tel Aviv, Israel. Today and right now, we're talking with Adrian from the Sismo team. Adrian, welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, how's your conference going so far? How's day two? It's going really great here. A lot of cool stuff are happening. A lot of ZK people. So for a team like us that are doing ZK, it's, it's always great. Yeah. So, uh, we're of course going to talk about Sismo and I want to, I want to, uh, see if you can explain Sismo in a sentence, but then we're going to talk about StarkNet and then we'll go back to Sismo. Yeah. So Sismo utilizes, uses ZK proof so that you can selectively reveal stuff from your wallet. So let's say that you have a big wallet with many, many data. Mm-hmm. We're using ZK proof so that you can just take a piece of it. And we tokenize it as a SBT. So let's say that you have a wallet with like many NFTs, DeFi stuff like that. You can just pick one data, one NFT, and you get a Solbond token on another address that is virgin, that is empty, that just proves that you own this NFT. So by doing this, you have chosen a piece of data and you can use this new address to connect on applications uh, and to yeah, just bring the data you want, basically. And this is, of course, an identity conversation uh, to help like express who we are, but also keep ourselves private, right? Exactly, yeah. It, it comes from the fact that having that in real life, you always choose, depending on the context, what you bring to the table, what, what, what part of your identity you bring. Mm-hmm. So, like, co-workers party, you don't bring the same identity that's in your co-working space, right? And so it's a bit similar with Sismo. What we're trying to do is that from your sovereign data from your wallets or even other Web2 accounts, you can exactly choose what you want to reveal when connecting to an app. Okay, so I want to ask you about how you ended up over overall in the StarkNet ecosystem. How did you get started? Was it with the StarkX or, or StarkNet? Like, how did you get started and why did you pick the StarkNet ecosystem? Yeah, so I think that, so just to be 100% clear, we're not yet de- deployed there. We want to. 
just, just to give a sense of what Sysmo is, like users in their front end, they gen generate ZK proofs. Like that, I have a certain NFT. And then we need to verify it. And Sysmo allows you to verify it on-chain, on Ethereum, on EVM chains, but also off-chain, like a server can just check the proof. And we plan to deploy on Starknet to verify in Cairo. So, so that's, we're not live yet, yet, but my, I'm a good friend with like a lot of people that have been in the ZK space for quite some time. I was working at Ave and we worked with them on, on, on bringing uh, Ave to there. So yeah, like a lot of friends in common, but not yet like fully deployed there. Is there, is there something uh, specific about Starknet's technology that is uh, conducive to what you're working on in Sysmo or can you also do this on well, I'm assuming you could do this on layer one, but that would probably be really expensive. Uh, what about other layer twos? And then why did you overall pick StarkNet? Yeah, so uh, I guess that Sysmo is a bit like we're not defined by blockchain. What we do is a bit off-chain. We generate proofs and you can verify it anywhere. So sure. any blockchain can be a substrate. For now, we are mainly on EVMs. So we are on, on mainnet, polygon, agnosis. We'll soon be on on other chains like Optimisms and like Layer 2s and Starknet. So we are really chain agnostic, basically. Uh, so you actually you actually don't need block space, do you? You don't need to consume block space to produce a proof. Exactly. Ah, but, okay. Yeah, we make it available on-chain for two reasons. First, so that smart contracts can use it. Right. And the other thing that is important, I think, is like the SBT parts, is that it's the standard that is well used even by off-chain applications. Mm -hmm. So by putting in our chain, it makes it the proof, the attestations right. is usable uh, it's composable, by like right. Snapshot, Guild, sure. like all the tools that are token gated basically. Sure. Okay. Uh, how did you come up with the name Sysmo? Uh, actually, it, fr it comes from the fact that, you know, Sysmology, uh -huh. it's like signal uh, science. Uh -huh. And so our goal is like from all the noise that you have on your wallet, you pick one and you reveal just this one. Okay. So let's talk about how this is um, conducive to identity. And uh, I watched you give a talk this morning, and you, of course, used the example. And this is a, a frequent example used in the uh, Web3 world of you get to pick and choose parts of your identity in the moment that they are relevant to the context that we want to talk about. Can you elaborate on this and then talk about how Sysmo enables this? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, we, we our thesis is that there's going to be more and more sovereign data that you own on the ID, on your wallet. And then, how, now that you own your social capital, that's not the case in Web2. In Web2, like your data is on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and they don't let you do anything with it. Like, it's impossible to create an event when you invite your Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn friends because they are so competitive on their data. Right. It's not yours. It won't be shared. Like, Twitter API is not payable. So, okay, so now that you have, like, what is, now that you have several wallets, several identity, your profile, like your DAO identity, your private wallet, your ENS, now it's yours. You can leverage it together. But let's say that you want to prove your total amount of ETH. Let's say that you have three wallets with 500 ETH. Well, yeah. You're lucky then. Then you're lucky if you have that. But imagine that. Uh, you can dream. You could potentially prove that you have more than 1,000 Ether without creating any link between your wallets. So that's where Sysmo comes in. It's like, for now, we allow you to granularly reveal part of your wallet per wallet. And soon we'll do also this on an aggregated version, meaning that you import in Sysmo Vault, like all your wallets, 
for now you can now start generating zk proof from any any of them and soon you'll be able to prove anything from the aggregated data that you have on all your wallets without creating links with them so the users is the only one that has the aggregated view mm -hmm. and it, the users can the user can bring exactly what they need or want to the app okay and so one important nuance that i want to pull out here is like say i have three wallets i've got my nft wallet And my, personally, my NFT wallet is also davidhoffman.eth. And so it's also where I have my ENS name. And this is my public wallet. It's my flex wallet, you know? I also have my DeFi wallet. Don't look at that one. Like, that's mine. Uh, and then maybe there's, like, another wallet out there that's my gaming wallet or something. And so the idea is that you can use Sysmo to take out all the properties you want from any wallet. And, use, and the point is to not be able to link them together so I can express what I want from each of these wallets. But the important point I want to uh, drive is that maybe there's an app that is asking you about some data that you want to provide, but you don't want to link these wallets together. You also don't need to link any wallet to that app, right? Because you don't need to... The app isn't asking for your wallet. It's just asking for perhaps a proof. So it's not only about not linking the wallets together. It's also not about showing the wallet in the first place, right? Definitely, yeah. That, that's exactly this. Like, what, what we do a lot to do is... The app will, yeah, we're trying to fight against the sign-in with Ethereum uh, version one. We love it, of course. Like, we can connect with your, as you said, your Ines wallet. It's a signal wallet. Mm -hmm. Everything that is here is public, so you can share it. You know that it's here. But now, let's say that you want to leverage your social capital from your private wallet. Right. You don't want to share it. So, yeah, we'll have this Prove with Sysmo button, basically, that you can embed in any app. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a sort of competitor, but not really to sign-in with Ethereum. But basically, by clicking this button, it's redirect to Sysmo, where you generate your ZK proof, and then you back to the app, and the app just knows, okay, you have a board ape or you have anything. So, yeah, that's... So, you said not could be competitive with uh, signing with Ethereum, but also could not be. Uh, we recently did a podcast with um, uh, with uh, Dwayne from uh, Wayne from uh, signing with Ethereum, and we, call, we talked about these things called data vaults. Couldn't a Sysmo ZK proof be something that goes into like the sign-in with Ethereum data vault as in like you can create that proof and then have that available to you? Exactly. That, that's what... First, we are not competitors because right. we can just enhance sign-in with Ethereum apps. Let's right. say you connect to... I know like Philand. You know Philand? Yeah. They mm -hmm. are doing like uh, from your history. You have a city or stuff like that. And so you're already logged in with your wallet, your public wallet. But what if you want to import data from your private right. wallet? You right. could use Sysmo from it. So it's not competitor. Ah, yeah. mm -hmm. Like you can just use it to boost. Like just you bring the data that you want. Right. Um, I was actually yeah. in the in the in the filing filing Discord saying like, hey, uh, I just logged in with Ethereum to do my my stuff. But you guys should use the zk proofs to do this. I was in the Discord so like telling them like, and then of course this is this is exactly what you're doing. Yeah, that's uh, that's our goal, and and generally, like, I think what thing that is interesting is, let's say that you want to create a newsletter for Ethereum stakers, mm -hmm. and you want to verify that they are all Ethereum stakers, you don't want their address. Yeah, of course you don't want it. So this it, it will be a very simple app. You will just have a proof with Sysmo. You redirect it to Sysmo. You prove that you are a staker. Then you get access to the email newsletter. We also did something. I don't know if you've seen this, but with the foundation, the merger pass. It's an NFT that gives access to conferences. And basically, uh, I think the foundation computed uh, the list of the 130 contributors to the merge. And to get the NFT, instead of just, you know, there's a whitelist. And instead of just giving the wallet to get the NFT, they use Sysmo 
to generate a ZK proof that they were part of the whitelist ah. without really. So this was the ZK drop. Uh, first app that uses this uh, proof with Sysmo flow. So is there a conversation to be had here about um, websites or companies or projects collecting user data? Because uh, perhaps with a GDPR requirements, they don't want to have, you don't want to be receiving too much data that you don't need. And so maybe like from the user perspective, I might only want to give you a ZK proof to protect my privacy. But from the company perspective, I might only want to receive certain data because I don't want the rest of that data. Is there a conversation here as well? Yeah, exactly. So first, like having like like companies like Ledger, they don't want the addresses, but they want to do some loyalty programs. So it's outside of GDPR. But now we've been talking with Ariani. It's a project that does that lets big brands like uh, LVMH, like Louis Vuitton, stuff like that, to tokenize their bags, and. They want to tokenize the bags so that they can have a relationship with their customers. But GDPR. And so they need a privacy layer. They need to be able not to be, they need to not be able to track their users. So they're talking with us. And Sysmo could be like a GDPR compliance layer for this loyalty programs or supply chain uh, stuff. Okay. So, uh, question for you. Say, uh, there's a, a party that you need a board ape to get into. And, uh, I don't have a board ape. Can I go to my friend who does have a board ape and I can get him to make a ZK proof of his board ape and then sell it to me? And then would that work? No, 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 basically no, but I just wanted to be sure to have the right uh, answer. But so the way it works is that you would create a SBT of your board ape ownership first in our current process. You need to prove ownership of both the source that is eligible, the owner of the, the board ape. And the destination. So, okay. So that's, uh, if you need, if, if you want him to create the ZK proof, you need to give him also the private address or your real address. So that won't work. Ah, okay. And then we have a nice property on our SBTs. They are actually more account bound, meaning that your SBT holder, if you lose the address or if you sh you sell it to someone, you always have the opportunity by recreating a ZK proof of ownership of the source to burn and remit. So it's this it it won't. I'm sure you can find a way to give your private address to a friend, but you won't be able to create a market of it because there's always the incentive I can get it back. Uh, okay, so so just to check my understanding, I can make a ZK proof of an NFT that I have, and I can give that to a friend. But that friend doesn't have any assurances that I didn't do that again and again and again and like kind of ruin ruin the marketplace. Yeah, so I wasn't precise enough. Like the ZK proof is like first you have the NFT. Right. And then you own the destination address that will have the SBT. Okay. So you need to have like to generate the ZK proof, mm -hmm. you need to have both addresses at the same time. Uh, so your friend's okay. address and yours. So you won't give your private key to your right. friends. Ah, uh, okay. So, so the only thing you can do is mint on a destination of yours, then give the private key to your friend. Sure. And then you always have the opportunity to burn and remit. Okay. So, yeah. So. Okay. So I can make a ZK proof of my NFT and I have to also use a private key of a destination address for where the soulbound token goes, but I can give that to my friend. And then, but then the, the, again, the friend doesn't really have any assurances that I don't do this multiple times. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But I could still get into the party though, because I can still give it to my friend. Yeah. That's, that's the version that we released today, okay. but tomorrow, like as soon as so we have this big thing at HCC, big, like the conference in Paris. Mm -hmm. We have this masquerade. It's a privacy-preserving party. And so okay. to get in, it's going to be this. Okay. 
But then what's great is that you won't be able to, the ZK proof will be off chain. It will be on a one time thing. Sure. So when you present to the events, you'll need to create the ZK proof on your mobile app, mm -hmm. prove directly that you have the punk and then you access like it's ongoing. You, you cannot, unless you share your wallet to your friends, you, you won't be able to do that. Sure. Okay. Uh, we talked about, so the soulbound token goes in the destination address. I think we might have skipped over that part of the conversation. Can you talk about the role of the soulbound token in the Sysmo ecosystem? Yeah, so, so let's start again with ZK proof. So I do a ZK proof that I have an eligible account for a specific batch. I'm part of the group of, uh, yeah. You're in, the, you're in the club. Yeah, I'm in the club. I have a board ape. Right. I'm part of it. I create a ZK proof. Then from ZK proof, we can use it all off chain, like, uh, option service that's, that can just check it. No SBT involved. Or we send the ZK proof on chain to what we call a ZK attester. It's a smart contract that verify your ZK proof. It's valid. So it checks you have an eligible source. It checks also that you own the destination. So it verifies the ZK proof. And then it means the SBT on your destination. And third, it stores what we call a nullifier. It's the fact that to make sure that you won't be able to use the same source twice to get two badges. So okay. one source, one badge. Okay. Uh, so when it comes to like the roadmap of Sysmo, what, how, how does this thing get started? Like what, what is the first sort of ZK proofs that you guys generate? Like how does, how does this play out in the future? Yeah. So, so today we have these SBTs. They are starting to be used to gate some like, I, I think of ZK pay that is a, a project on Aztec that gates their community to people that have been using uh, Aztec. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of, there's, there are also a lot of personal tokens. Like in the Sysmo factory, factory.sysmo.io, you can easily create a ZK badge, like click, click, like uh, no code UI, a ZK badge for all your lens followers, for instance. Okay. So we have this. I think it's, it's great, but, uh, I mean, it is great, but we're trying to aim wider, meaning we want to really help application developers to gate their services to specific users without getting their wallets. That's what we were saying about. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll go to the market with the Proofisismo button that is easy to integrate. Basically, step one, you choose your gate. Like, I want to gate a service to my lens followers or people that follow Vitalik or I don't know. Then you you get all the you get the button to integrate in your front end, and then all the Solidity library if you want it to be a SBT or an off-chain uh, uh, package to verify the ZK proof. Anyway, so uh, for the listeners that are listening right now, we have a lot of uh, Lens users and Farcasters users in the Bakeless Nation. Is that probably where they might run into Sysmo first? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's like. Yeah. We we. Yeah, forecasters, lens, they, they are actors within the Sysmo ecosystem on two sides. First, they are sovereign graphs, right? So you can prove stuff from your forecaster. I can prove that I follow you on forecaster. I can prove that I follow you on lens. And then they can integrate Sysmo to do specific stuff like follow me only if you prove me that you are part of the proof of humanity registry. And so on the two sides, I think like, we're building infrastructure for these kind of people. Like that's that's our focus. We want to onboard civil resistant teams that build these groups. Like anyway, yeah, yeah, we're building for them. Very very cool. Uh, if people want to start experimenting or just read more about Sysmo, where should they go? 
Yeah, we're trying to, to keep the doc updated like a lot. So it's always an iteration process. So go to docs.sysmo.io and create your first DK badge on factory.sysmo.io. It's a very really simple app. Uh, you choose your group of eligible accounts from like, you can say like my snapshot voters, people that follow me on lens, like, uh, you can use, yeah, many things. You, you see like subgraph, like many things. So you can create your ZK badge, you choose the metadata and it's live. So uh, that's the things that you can do today and, and keep updated. Like within the next two months, we'll release like this dev tooling, the proof with Sysmo button. That will be so exciting, I think. Because I'm looking forward to it. Uh, what's the website and any other social medias that you want people to follow? Yeah, so it's Sysmo underscore ETH. That's the Twitter. That's the main landing with the docs. Like the website is, yeah, the docs is our main landing, I, I would say. Docs.sysmo.io. Awesome. Adrian, uh, for the rest of uh, your time here in Tel Aviv and at the Starkware sessions, uh, what's, what's exciting to you? What talks have you liked? What have you enjoyed? Who have you talked to? Anything that stands out to you so far? Yeah, so it, it was actually one of my first Starknet conferences. And the, I met so many people working on ZK Starks. I'm more like a ZK Snark guy. Yeah. So like a, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I've met like, like crazy, a crazy amount of people that just blew my mind. Like yesterday, I was at an event, and wow! Like the community is, is big because mm -hmm. I, I thought that I knew a lot of smart and great people in ZK, and like it's twice the size actually. So it's, mm -hmm. I think like it's just getting started. Like all this ZK stuff, and uh, yeah, the crowd is amazing. Uh, I, I sincerely advise you to go to this kind of conferences. Sure. Like, uh, uh, is the Sysmo team going to be at East Denver? We're not this time. We're, we have to ship what I told you about, like yeah. two months of sprints, and then we'll go like many hackathons okay. until e ITC. ECC is the big one? ITC is the big one, and you, we have our big party, so yeah, we're going to be all in on ITC, and before that, we'll go at East Porto, East Dam, and another, we'll do a lot of hackathons, so always happy to help you guys uh, get started with this one. Adrian, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation. And cheers. Cheers. In this interview, we are talking to Gregoire from OnlyDust. Now, OnlyDust is an application on StarkNet to help developers start building in Starkware using StarkNet. It's like a developer bounty board, a kiosk. There's jobs for you to go do. Uh, and this is perhaps an entry point for getting started in building in the world of StarkNet. Uh, there is money associated with this. So if you are a developer looking to make money while also growing your knowledge base about StarkNet, this episode is for you. So let's go ahead and get right into it. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bangs of Station, we are back in Tel Aviv for the Starkware sessions, and today we're talking with Gregor of, uh, what, what's your project called? Only Dust. Only Dust. How did you come up with Only Dust? I think to create stars, you need Only Dust. Okay. So it's like all developers of a community are just little, just dust, but with them we can create stars, we can create new ecosystem, and just wonderful. And you, you, it's a little joke because it's like an OD, you know, so overdose. And, uh, in French, is uh, poudre de perlimpinpin. It's a private joke for French, but uh, yes. Okay, so what does OnlyDust do? OnlyDust, it's a peer, it's a peer-to-peer, -peer, a ground platform. So we have the money of the foundation within OnlyDust, and all developers can grant each other. So it's not like a, a committee, a borrowing committee with some paperwork. It's a developer with like, okay, I like your job, I want to grant you. Some all developers are granting each other, and it's very, very effective, and it it has a very strong network effect because developer. 
Unbound their friends, who unbound their friends, and it's working very well, and it's all transparent, so we have no fraud on the platform. It's just completely amazing, completely community-driven. So this is perhaps a little bit like Gitcoin in the sense that it's a grants platform, but it's different from Gitcoin in that projects on StarkNet are giving grants to other projects on StarkNet? Yes, is that right? exactly. And on, in the same repository on GitHub, a project can give grants to other contributors, and a lead can, uh, for example, if a developer sees an amazing opportunity with a good developer, he can grant another developer, and this developer can grant developer on his repository. So it's just contributor granting contributors, yes. So if uh, a developer is interested by StarkNet, but they don't know where to go, perhaps this is a place to get started? Is that, is that yes, fair? Yes, I think it's the best place. And we are working right now, we will work with the Ethereum Foundation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other blockchain are coming to us because we have a very, very strong growth and it's working very well. So I think when we are talking with foundation, a lot of foundation were like, we don't want to have a grant program because it's not effective. It's not cost efficient. And when we see our results and our community are like, I want to do this, I need this. And for example, it's a bit strange because I was in a meeting with a big foundation and we're like, so we have a business model. We take, we have a take rate on all grant and we're like, you are not, um, you need to increase your price. I'm like, what the fuck? Like I have a 50% uh, take rate. We're like, no, 20 on 25 minimum. So yes, it's amazing to see this kind of product market thing because grant program, as a long story of failure, according to me. And we are reinventing this with the community for the open source, so it's very cool. Okay, uh, where does the money come from for the grants? A foundation of companies. For example, StarkNet Foundation is our biggest grant right now, and we're, we are very happy to work with them. And for example, a company like Cardridge, so I think you have interviewed them, they are like, okay, we can give you some money because we, we want to support this kind of open source project. Uh, for example, Theodo is another sponsor of this event. They are like, okay... We will give you um, 100 or 200k for this kind of project. So we have private company and we have big foundation. Okay, so is this a way for? This isn't really. This is not specific, uh, specific to the Starknet Foundation, right? No. So you you guys are your own independent company. Yes. That's meant to facilitate grants inside of the Starknet ecosystem. Yes, in the Starknet, it's the open source ecosystem. So. Uh -huh. Right open now source. it's StarkNet, okay. but open source. If okay. it's open source, it can be funded. As for example, the StarkNet Foundation right now mm -hmm. with us is funded non-StarkNet project because we think it's interested for the public goods. So it's a new way to fund public goods, we think. But a lot of the money for grants does come from the StarkNet? Yes, uh, yes. right now it's okay. okay, yes. Okay, and so it's a way to distribute value from the StarkNet Foundation to the rest of the StarkNet ecosystem yes, for now? Yes, totally, yes. And yeah. it scales very, very well. And so uh, teams inside of the StarkNet ecosystem can get bootstrapped because they're getting financial resources from the StarkNet Foundation, but it's getting allocated by OnlyDust? Yes, it's not by OnlyDust. It's with OnlyDust platform. Right, yes. Yes, but by developer, yes. Right. Exactly. Okay, so say I'm Argent. How, yes. would, I, how would I use OnlyDust and yeah. what would I use it for? They come to us and say, okay, for this type of project, for this type of feature, it's open source. We want to have contributors. And we're like, okay, let's go. We push the project on our platform. We have a lot of contributors who are like, I want to work on this project. We present, we introduce them to Argent. They begin to work on uh, GitHub. And at the end of the, of the week, the lead of uh, Argent will say, okay, I want to pay this contributor this kind of uh, one, one grand or two, two, one thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. This one, two hundred, this one. 
Exact. And Ulrich is doing that. And at the end of the budget of the Argent, there is some developer who are saying, okay, what we are doing with Argent on other contributor on this repository, it's so cool. We want that they, are, they, they need to have more money. So they click on a button on our product and they have more money and more money and more money. And if it's not cool, if it's not useful, and um, if other contributors think that it's not very well executed, for example, they have no more money. So it's very, you know, it's very violent because sometimes the project just ends because there is not, not enough quality, not enough value for the ecosystem. And so how do, how do teams like Argent or other uh, like projects that are building on StarkNet, how do they get money from the foundation? Do they have to apply for a grant from the foundation? No. They, they can, uh, sometimes they are direct told with the foundation, but when we talk with us, they just have to talk with other developer. So they don't talk to the foundation. So we have some, for example, Teodo or, Quadratic, they are building on StarkNet and they didn't talk to a member of the foundation. They are just talking with developers of the community. So for the foundation, it's very cool because they don't have to talk to every company. And if they want to have a specific interaction with the company, they contact them. But uh, normally, they don't have to talk to the foundation. But, okay, but the, the developers don't have to talk to the foundation, but someone talks to the foundation. Uh, us. Just you. Because, yes, we, ah, have a, okay. we have an annual contract with the foundation. And we have a dashboard with all the results, all the developers, all the contributors, all the churn developers. It's like the developer report, you see, but for the StarkNet ecosystem and it's actualized day to day, it's day to day. And, um, they see this data and they are like, okay, we like what we see. So we give you more money and more money and more money. So right now we have a contract for 2023 and we will negotiate a contract for 2024. And so we are negotiating for the whole ecosystem with the foundation. So this is like, um, uh, only does it's like a, a kiosk of jobs yes. for the StarkNet ecosystem. Yes. And like as a developer, you can go to this kiosk and like, oh, that job looks cool. It's I'll not job. Up. It's not this project is cool. I right. want to work on this project. It's not job. It's not ah. bounties. It's project. So okay. you apply to a project. You go in a Telegram group. You talk with other developer. You ship some. Uh, you merge some peer on GitHub and you are paid for this. Mm-hmm. But there is no job. No, it's it where. Um, it's project centric. Right. We have tried the Bounty centric approach. Mm-hmm. It was devastating. It was yeah. because sure. yes, Bounty I think don't work. Right. Okay. Amazing. Uh, so I'm a developer. I'm interested in getting started. Where do I go? You go to our website. You see all the projects. You can contact directly the developer in charge of the grant of the project. Mm-hmm. You talk with him. You go in this Instagram group. You work and via, and at the end of the week you are paid. How do, how much am I paid? Normally, it's $500 a day. Uh-huh. It could be more if you're more experienced. It could be less if you are a junior developer. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, uh, it's your lead. It's the lead project of the, it's a developer of the open source pro- project. We will decide. And, uh, what kind of jobs are available? What kind of gigs? Okay. Uh, right now, uh, we have a lot of, for example, of smart contract developer in Cairo. We have a need for data scientists. We need a Rust developer, a lot of Rust developer front. So we need a lot of, there's a lot of need. Right now we have 45 project, open source projects and we are growing very fast. We have 300 developers. And so if you come, it's impossible to not find a good project. And if you don't find a good project right now, just contact us and I have a team dedicated to this. They just make the introduction. Awesome. And what's the website? Uh, onlydust.xyz. Um, onlydust.xyz? Yes. Awesome. Gregory, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Cheers. 
In this interview, we are talking to Herodotus, and that is an interesting name, uh, which will become self-evident as to how they named what they are working on Herodotus in this interview. Herodotus is a system for taking all of the very deep, rich data that we have across many, many chains and allowing each of these chains to access the state across chains, both the current state and the historical state. So say, for example, Optimism, uh, Uniswap on Optimism wants to understand the average price of Ether on Arbitrum over a 30-day period, arbitrary length period. Herodotus, uh, by running all of these very deep archive nodes across all of these chains, can provide all of this data to all across all of these chains using ZK proofs in order to compress all of this data and prove it to the chain. It's an extremely useful thing to do, and the use cases for this are quite large. So I will let your imagination run wild as you listen to this episode. But first, before we get into this episode, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. And we're back in Tel Aviv for the Starkware sessions, and I'm talking with the Herodotus team. Uh, you guys want to introduce yourselves, and then we'll get into what you guys are building? Sure. Uh, I'm Casper Kozil. I am one of the co-founders of Herodotus. Um, Marcello? Yeah, Marcello, also one of the co-founders of Herodotus. And yeah, I'm the technical guy. And so uh, we're absolutely going to dive into Herodotus. But first, I want to ask you guys about why you decided to come all the way out to Tel Aviv for Starkware Sessions. What brought you here? Well, StarkNet, the whole community over here is very vibrant. They're building a really... Uh, interesting ecosystem with a lot of unique projects. Uh, we wanted to network with these projects and essentially explain to other projects how they can leverage storage proofs and the advancements that we're building at uh, Herodotus um, and explore all the unique applications that these uh, technologies unlock. Yeah, another reason. Uh, we use cryptography, we love cryptography. Many people over here also seem to like cryptography, so yeah, it just makes sense to come here and chat with the guys and yeah. So you use the word storage proofs, which uh, in, uh, tells me that this is going to be a very technical co- conversation. So fair warning to the bankless nation. Uh, when, how did you guys come up with the with the need for Herodotus? Her- how, how, how do you pronounce it? Herodotus. Herodotus. How did you guys come up with the need for Herodotus? Yes. So actually, Herodotus is the father of history. Uh, <laughs> that's what he's known for. But he's also the supposed creator of something called the Herodotus machine, which, uh, fun fact, the Herodotus machine was supposedly used to... Um, builds pyramids so in Cairo. So Cairo, Starknet, kind of the vibe. That's where the uh, the names came from. Um, and yeah, and Herodotus, since he was a historian, uh, our solutions unlock access to historical data uh, for Ethereum and applications on it. And uh, and we thought that I was an interesting fit. Um, and yeah, it's a very technical product. So the the target audience of that name is also uh, quite uh, quite niche. So it fits. So when did the Herodotus project get started? So uh, Herodotus itself, we started building it in August of uh, last year, August 2022. And, um, and since then, we have gone through a lot of research, a lot of uh, experimentation to, that brought us to this point here. Uh, we have presented some of the concepts and some of the technologies that we have been building at several conferences last year, uh, but uh, only here at StarkNet uh, uh, Starkware sessions in, in Tel Aviv. Uh, we have actually been able to demo a working API implementation of what using this, these products, these uh, solutions that we've been building will look like. And, uh, and we're very excited to share them with, uh, with the community. Um, the developers that build on top of this, uh, essentially, um, can, can build really cool things. And I'd love to give you some examples of, uh, how others are using and exploring our, our technologies. 
And, uh, yeah, we're there. First, I'd like to ask, what's broken about the state of all of these blockchains that we're using, the state of Web3, because Herodotus doesn't exist? What's broken about the world right now? Yeah, so, first of all, I would say that nowadays we live in a 2D world. Why? Because if you build a smart contract, the smart contract can access its own storage and to some limited scope, the storage of other contracts. And we want to enable some other dimensions, one of them being, hey, let's see what's happening on other rollups and other layers of Ethereum. And another dimension, which is probably the most important one, is time. And yeah, that's our mission, to essentially enable these two dimensions. So where, where should we get started diving into Herodotus? Uh, where 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 I, should we leave? I think the best way to kind of uh, get started is to go over some use cases, give some intuition as to where this technology fits in, and then maybe later on we can kind of cover some uh, some more of the like the technical stuff of how we actually make this happen and uh, where do we see Herodotus fitting in in the future. Um, so as of right now, I'd say that our most flagship integration is with uh, is for governance. It's Snapshot X. And essentially what Snapshot X allows you to do is it allows you, well, how they use Herodotus is they leverage Herodotus storage proofs to allow you to prove ownership of L1 assets on uh, on StarkNet. So essentially you're able to prove that you are the rightful owner of an asset on an L2 uh, and uh, reap the utility of this asset. And this is very powerful uh, because you're able to keep the security of keeping your assets on this main net chain and essentially eliminate the need for bridging. And I think that's one of the main takeaways from uh, from storage proofs in general. They unlock a lot of use cases. And while I agree that there's a big shift over the recent months to, uh, well, years, uh, to uh, bridging assets between various chains, storage proofs actually eliminate the need for bridging in many circumstances. That said, it is possible to build a bridge on top of uh, storage proofs. Um, however, the, the general, like, possibilities of what, you can, of what you can build on top of them are quite limitless. And, uh, and yeah, so Snapshot is one of a very interesting example because users normally are kind of restricted to, to voting on the L1, which of course is pretty expensive. And uh, if we want to have DAO adoption, adoption governance becoming uh, much more used, uh, we want to make sure it's accessible to all the people who might not want to pay $16 for transaction fee, um, et cetera. Is there anything you want to add? No, I think that was that was a great cool. explanation. I think that's a use case that a lot of people in the Bankless Nation probably pretty easily wrap their heads around. Um, I mean, how many times has there been a snapshot vote that has been relevant to a DeFi app or DAO that you are a part of, but your assets are somewhere else and you haven't really, you just can't vote. And so what do you do? Do you go retrieve your assets to go snapshot vote or do you just skip the vote? You probably skip the vote. Yeah, especially when uh, gas fees go through the roof and... Uh, right. Not much you can do about that at that time. So, uh, so yeah, so governance is one example, but uh, there's a lot more you can build with this. So I personally am always excited with most of the financial applications of what's possible to build on this. And uh, one of the examples is lending. Cross-chain lending is quite interesting because uh, you're able to essentially do something like locking your assets on an L1 and taking out a loan on an L2 based on storage proof. Uh, this allows you to keep your assets on a chain that you find secure, which is L1, you trust it, huh. and, uh, and get exposure for, let's say, cross-chain arbitrage, etc. Um, I, I want to I unpack that one really quick because I think that's really, really cool. Okay, so like, say I have an Aave position on Optimism, uh, and I would like to borrow USDC on Optimism, but I don't have any ETH on Optimism. All my ETH is on the layer one. And so using, using uh, what, what, are they, what are they called? Uh, bridge, um, 
Storage proofs. proofs. Storage proofs. Storage, storage proofs. Excuse me. So using storage proofs, I can lock up my assets on the layer one and then prove that to Ave on layer two. Yep. Yes. Precisely. Yes, but that's that's something that can be built on top of Herodotus. Uh, so, like, I want to clarify that uh, our infrastructure unlocks these use cases, but it's up to the actual end developers to sure. build these solutions on top of them. Sure. Strictly theor- theoretical Correct. use cases. Correct. Right? Uh, all the examples I'm going to list right now are simply things that projects we have been discussing with, entering into partnership agreements with. Uh, are exploring and we've heard of. Um, another really cool example that I'm sure if someone's, uh, has listened to our Starknet, uh, workshop presented by Maciej Sulecki, um, is essentially proving that your nonce in an account abstraction wallet has not changed in over a year. Mm. And at that point, you could essentially write, uh, account abstraction wallets that allow you to do fund recovery that is based on like a dead man switch, for example. So you can prove that there was no activity for over a year, which makes it a reasonable assumption you maybe lost your keys. And at that point, you could delegate ownership of that wallet or transfer funds based on that proof. That can also work for EOAs that are part of, a, let's say, a multi-seek. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does how does the magic come about? What's the magic under the hood that really enables this to happen? Okay, so uh, that's my part. So essentially, the way how we think about blockchain is essentially it's a, it's a list, right? A list of blocks. And there is a very nice cryptographic relation between them. Essentially, one block header refers to its parent, right, in a cryptographic manner because the hashes just match. And we essentially embrace that relation. We just process the whole chain. We we prove it so we know that whatever we come up with is valid. And then on top of that, we can access the state roots. And the state roots are just a root of a tree that contains everything was ever committed on, on the blockchain at this specific block. And essentially, by just... Leveraging cryptographic proofs, we are able to access whatever was present at any time on a, any chain. Okay, uh, and so where does the role of just like nodes come into play? Like this is all based off of archive nodes, right? Yes. So to to kind of expand on like storage proofs in general, they're very complex to work with, and they have pretty high hardware like requirements and know how requirements. Uh, you need to have archive nodes, and you need to maintain them. You need to benchmark the different proving systems that can be used to essentially generate these proofs. And on every single chain, this will vary. Uh, this is pretty complex, and we believe that developers it doesn't give a developer a very easy integration experience. Um, if we want to see storage proofs mainstream and essentially see them being adopted in the increased amount of projects, uh, we want to simplify that as much as possible. Uh, we want to take this very complex topic and make it easy to integrate into your app. So, for example, uh, let's say I want to have uh, an options protocol that settles based on, let's say, historical historical yield of, let's say, an Aave, on Aave. Um, we could take that feed from essentially Herodotus by essentially sampling historical points in time uh, through from the blockchain and computing something we call a verifiable data feed. Uh, that's an interesting use case as well. Um, what else? Um, and yeah, so essentially we're abstracting the complexity of working with storage proofs and uh, giving them to uh, developers in an easy-to-use API. So let me uh, try and repeat a bunch of stuff to make sure I ch- check my understanding here. So like there are some ways for data to go into our DeFi apps. That DeFi app might actually be able to look on chain at historical data and then come up with its own data feed about using native smart contracts on Ethereum. But that's probably going to be really computationally intensive and probably extremely expensive. And on the L1, probably so expensive that it's not even possible. And it's just a theoretical conversation because of how expensive it is. What you guys are doing is operating archive nodes, taking that same data that 
exists on Ethereum or other layer twos or whatever, and then generating a proof of that data, which then you can prove to a smart contract about the data that's going into it. And you can also prove that it's valid and that smart contract can receive that same data. But rather than that smart contract processing Ethereum history, uh, you guys are just feeding it externally, but you don't have any trust assumptions because it's a proof. Exactly. Correct. Yes. Nice. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, that sounds so generalizable that you can unlock almost anything with that. Yes, there's a lot more use cases that I can probably think of. I'd kind of like to explain as to how we actually got here and um, how we ended up in a situation where this data access is sharded essentially amongst all these other chains. Um, layer 2s have done a lot for Ethereum. They increase transaction through throughput, etc., um, however, in itself, in like the very early days of Ethereum, if you were a smart contract, you had access to pretty much all the data. You, it was all on this one chain. And as we wanted to increase this transaction throughput on Ethereum, layer twos managed to increase this transaction throughput, but in itself, they sharded this data access. So if you were that smart contract, you would do no longer had access to all the data because it became isolated within your layer two. Um, and, uh, and with Herodotus and our APIs and, uh, and the solutions that we're building, what we want to enable you to do is we want to en enable developers to once again be able to access data between these layer twos in uh, a trustless manner, relying on, uh, on these cryptographic properties that mm -hmm. secure the blockchain itself uh, without introducing unnecessary trust assumptions. So what's the roadmap like? Like, what are you guys building first? I think you guys, you talked about Snapshot. Uh, it sounds like that's coming first. What's coming second? What's coming third? What are the ways that people are going to be impacted by this the most? Yes. So our first uh, first integrations are essentially with Starknet. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a Starknet Ethereum uh, connection built. We define these as connections, meaning that when there's two chains between there, there's a need for data access. Uh, we define that as a connection. Um, and this connection can be one directional or bidirectional. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the first connection that we have built and we have successfully benchmarked, etc., and we will be releasing access for uh, the public for with API keys, etc., in the future, is this connection that allows you to read Ethereum data from Starknet. Okay. So it's a one-directional connection. In this case, this was more of a, a decision that it's very expensive to do it the other way around. Uh, in the future, this is something we're going to explore as well. And uh, now that we have done this Starknet Ethereum uh, connection, the next ones that we're going to be exploring are going to be uh, EVM to EVM. We haven't yet finally uh, finalized the decision as to which uh, which roll-up uh, we're going to go go for. Uh, but uh, this is going to come out sometime in the next two, uh, two to three Maybe months. Maybe to add on top of that, uh, we also allow to access state from Polygon, Optimism, and Arbitrum of Starknet. So my intuition tells me that um, this just works across any blockchain. And the fact that a layer one or a layer two or a sidechain or an alternative layer one is actually a detail that does not matter for what you guys are building. Uh, yes, in, in a way, right now we're simply focusing on making it EVM compatible and the chains that we deploy it on later is, uh, is a later decision. Um, we have not picked one yet. Uh, maybe to add on top of that, uh, we firstly are focused on doing like L2 to L2 communication, L1 to L2. We are not looking at L1 to L1 yet because it's a completely different type of problem. Many things are in common, but it's, uh, it's still not on, on the roadmap yet. Not, not for any time soon. So how big is the team? Uh, currently, uh, there's nine of us, um, and uh, there's a few part-time people. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the team's, the team's growing, and, um, and we're building. There's results, and, uh, I, and things are moving very nicely. Beautiful. If people want to learn more, where should they go? 
Um, Herodotus Dev, the Twitter, or Herodotus.dev, the website, is probably the best resource. And, uh, and yeah, that's where we post updates, etc. Awesome. And it, uh, at the end of this uh, interview, at the end of this conversation, the uh, naming father of modern history definitely checks out. I understand that how that came to be. <laughs> Happy to hear that. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. In this interview, we are talking to Cartridge. Cartridge is building out all of the Legos that is needed to produce on-chain gaming in the StarkNet world. We, of course, know what Web3 Gaming is. Web3 Gaming is like gaming with assets. You have games, but now you also have assets in your game. It's different in the world of StarkNet because we have the compression technologies of ZK rollups, of ZK tech. We can do much, much more than just assets in our game. We can put much more of our game logic on-chain. Perhaps smart contracts on Ethereum are put for putting business in finance logic. Well, since we have so much more compression power on ZK rollups, we can put more game logic on-chain and have that actually be viable due to how much compression is in the world of ZK rollups. And so Cartridge got started trying to build an on-chain game, and then they realized that first we need to build all this normal game infrastructure that other games are also going to have to do if they also build on StarkNet. So first, we have to build the tools, the player databases, you know, the player profiles, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then it can incur a blossoming of more and more and more on-chain games on StarkNet. So that's the pitch. We're going to go into more of these details and so much more. So let your imaginations run wild. But first, I'm going to talk to some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless Nation, we are back at the Starkware Sessions in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I am here with uh, Terrence, who's going to walk us through the world of Starkware gaming, Stark, StarkNet gaming, excuse me. Uh, Terrence, tell us, how did you arrive on StarkNet? What brought you here? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for having me. Um, so my journey on StarkNet started about, I would say, November 2021. Uh, we had recently launched the Dope Wars project, which is based on, on loot. And it was an on-chain gaming ecosystem with a DAO associated with it. And as part of like the secondary royalties, uh, bootstrapped a DAO that was governed by the players that have minted like this free-to-mint NFT. And we started a grant fund where we would just grant people, like the DAO would choose to grant people building on interesting things, contributing to the Dope Wars universe. And someone came to the DAO with this idea to rebuild uh, this game called Drug Wars, which is what Dope Wars was based on, uh, fully on-chain on top of StartNet. And this is very early on in the StarkNet kind of like iteration cycle. Is right before StarkNet even had a, a mainnet available. Um, and he and we built out a fully on-chain game um, that was very early on uh, and kind of opened my eyes to what was possible, this idea of putting like everything on-chain, not just, you know, the assets, but all of the rules and, and the uh, properties and everything that governs like the, the, the loop of this game. And so that's what really brought me to StarkNet and was the beginning of the journey that has brought me today to uh, building Cartridge and, and helping out the ecosystem um, of on-chain gaming on StarkNet Evolve. So I definitely want to really just dive headfirst into the world of on-chain gaming and how that's different from what people might be used to when they hear like Web3 gaming. But first, um, the fact that this got started off of the Loot Project, I think, is really interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, because this is actually the, the second gaming community that I've heard come out of Loot. Mm-hmm. The first one being Magic. But the, the Magic ecosystem came out of, again, like that whole Loot phenomenon. But that went to Arbitrum. Mm-hmm. Why did you and why did others come to, to StarkNet? Like, what about StarkNet has really attracted you? 
Yeah, so actually, so we originally, a lot of the, the, the Dope Wars ecosystem is actually on optimism. So we built out, um, very early on in the optimism ecosystem, we built on fully on-chain rendered NFTs to represent, like in Dope Wars, you have a hustler, which is your item. And then all the items that you got, like on the original card, were bridged to uh, optimism as individual items. So you get like your gun or your, your you know, like your, your your Air Force Ones or your gold chain and stuff like that. And you can like assemble them for on your, onto your character, onto your hustler, and ran, those are all stored and rendered on chain. So that was you know an early experiment of having a fully on chain NFTs that are inter, like interoperable and composable, and people can kind of like play this game of of equipping like the the dopest hustler. Um, so we were kind of open to. I mean, it, it was very apparent early on that you can't build, especially you know during the the, the, the bull market of like the, you know like late twenty one whatever where. Ethereum gas prices were like north of 100 guai. You can't really build a game on chain and expect people to interact with it. So we were very, you know, eager to explore different options. So we started with optimism and then, uh, started building out the, and optimism was, you know, much more production ready at that, at the moment in time and then started building out on Starknet. Um, I think with Starknet, it's really, uh, there's a set of constraints that it loosens versus like EVM chains. Like one is around like the complexity of the smart contracts that can get like a little bit tricky to deal with when writing solidity. And the other is this idea of like, um, of fractal scaling and exponential availability of compute that you can put on chain, which I think like makes Starknet particularly interesting for, for building games on as well as some other properties, um, like account abstraction that, you know, obviously everyone's very excited about. Yeah, there, there's so many different ways to, to start this conversation. Uh, account abstraction, definitely one of them for needing to have the necessary infrastructure to really onboard people into gaming. But I think that really, that, that big unlock is the, the ZK element mm-hmm. that allows you just to do more. Can you talk about the ZK rollup and what it's allowed you to do when building on Sarknet? Yeah, definitely. I think it really just allows you to have a lot more bandwidth for like expressing computation on chain with the future like potential avenues for exponentially increasing that through you know fractal scaling or client side proving so you even have you know properties of like private information that are easily incorporated into the starknet like blockchain by producing a proof on your client you know allowing for like hidden information and then putting that on chain as well as uh, different data availability solutions that are, are starting to come to market. So when you think about a game, there's obviously like a spectrum of assets that require different properties, right? And so as you want to put more and more of those games on chain so that they like, you know, inherit the properties of the blockchain, like the hardness and the persistence and that they can be around forever, uh, you want, you, you don't want to, you know, necessarily want to pay the same amount like per byte, for example, for, you know, like an, a core item versus maybe like some illustration of an item or like a 3D model of an item. So I think like that's another very interesting avenue that uh, ZK Rollups and Starknet have, have been innovating in that is going to be like crucial uh, to building fully on-chain games. Yeah, so fully on-chain games. Can you compare and contrast these, uh, what a fully on-chain game is versus what uh, perhaps a more, what people might know as a Web3 game? How is this different? Yeah, so I think like, Baseline, they have some similarities, uh, potentially. Um, like the, the, the Web3 games generally, I would say, are characterized by assets living on chain and taking advantage of the, the capability of the blockchain for like player ownership of assets and uh, the ability for people to trade them in secondary markets. So like uh, opening up this idea that uh, gamers should 
own their assets. They should be able to sell them. They should be able to like accumulate them over time, potentially by like playing the game and potentially get paid for the game. Right? There's like people working on different dynamics, and like I mean, I would say. Uh, to, you know, di- different degrees of success, obviously, what we've seen from like, you know, play to earn and stuff like that. Um, so I think like, you know, that's like the first, just scratching the surface of the properties that a blockchain brings to the table that makes sense for games. On chain games, you start to see like a lot more of that logic start to live on chain. So, you know, with Web3 games, you're still reliant on this promise that there's some off chain game that's going to implement these assets. It's going to make them useful. And that, like, your your assets are going to derive value from, right? Whereas on-chain game, we start put, we start to put all that logic on-chain, like incrementally and like eventually, potentially everything, right? So the rules that the properties of those assets or those items, like I don't even really like to call them assets because it like, you know, it's a very financialized term. Like when you think I start thinking about like a whole gaming ecosystem being on-chain, there's really a ton of different like objects that exist or in this universe, and and maybe anything some, in your gaming inventory. Yeah, and some of them might be tradable, some of them might not. Some of them might be issued by the, the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, all of those things, or even the properties of a, of a boss, right? Like what is, you know, the, the class of the boss and stuff like all of these kind of things start to live on chain. They're legible by smart contracts and people can start to make assumptions about this foundation that it's not going to go away beneath them, right? Like, so in traditional gaming, even in web three gaming, um, it's hard to build a game on top of another game, right? We've seen it like many times over with, with, with franchises like Warcraft or GTA where a developer builds like a, a ecosystem alongside that maybe like takes advantage of like some game and mods it in a certain sense. But it's very hard for them to turn that into like a sustainable business model because you're kind of, you know, always at the whims of the original IP owner. So you you like if you become too popular, like you know, then probably lawyers get involved, and like you, you maybe you'll figure out like an exit strategy or like some kind of acquisition. But it's very hard, for example, for like a, an investor to, or even a person to invest a lot of time into building something that they think they can last on top of like a fragile foundation. You know, it's like a similar property that you get when you build on top of Twitter, and then like all of a sudden they they close the APIs off, right? And so with on-chain games, you get to have a foundation that you can make assumptions about and you can start to build in that, th- that universe can compound, right? Um, so I think like those are, that, that's like the big contrast of the properties that the blockchain gives to on-chain games that I think are going to, you know, over time, it's a very emergent, like very early on in the ecosystem, but over time, because um, the, the efforts were compound, we're going to see like an incredibly vibrant, like, you know, massive ecosystems of, of these parallel, like, on-chain universes that anyone can contribute to and monetize and be compensated for expanding. And so, just to, to reiterate what you said, like, we have Web3 games, which is really just about the instantiation of in-game assets as tokens, mm-hmm. but the game itself is rendered and not really it's like the game itself is just like a normal web 2 game it's a trad game yeah and so what we're talking about and specifically the magic of zk rollups and what why we're here at starknet uh is because you because of what a zk rollup is you actually can do more things as in what uh, zk rollups are trying to do is just reduce the cost of computation mm-hmm. down to their absolute minimum yeah and when you can reduce when you do reduce the cost of computation all of a sudden what is viable to put on chain actually increases yep. so have you thought about 
after assets, what goes on chain after like now that we have much more commoditized computational costs, mm-hmm. what what can go on chain next? What makes sense to put on chain? Yeah. So I think we're seeing a, a, a bunch of di- different experimentation with this. Uh, like I mentioned, the Dope Boys ecosystem, we, ex- we experimented with fully on chain NFTs and rendering. And there's a few projects obviously doing that on Ethereum as well um, on Starknet. Uh, we, we're starting to see fully on-chain games like Moomoo by Topology, which is uh, they've uh, built a fully on-chain physics engine that deals um, with processes and is basically like a very fun but technical game where you set up different state machines to kind of uh, uh, achieve this objective. You should check it out if you haven't, uh, Moomoo by Topology. There's another game like Influence, which is a space exploration game, which is a lot of fun. And that game as well like has... Um, some NFT assets that they issued uh, initially that are incorporated into the game, their crewmates and asteroids. And then they've built out this like very immersive experience on-chain, fully on-chain of how you explore this universe, how you travel through the universe, how you can you know land on an asteroid uh, and start to mine resources from that asteroid and, and build like a civilization. And, and you know it's a very there's a, we they recently did a testing event with a bunch of like a, you know a few thousand players and um, everyone was fully on chain on Starknet and playing this game and and it, it starts to create like these interesting behaviors where you know one of the cool things was people started building. Um, civilizations on these asteroids or like or machinery on these asteroids to kind of like make a picture right and because it's on the blockchain it's almost like okay now the game itself is like you know like an nft in a sense right uh which is like a cool like uh emergent behavior and then you have the the realms team obviously building a few different games on on um starknet and pushing the barriers of what's possible there uh when that too is a fully on-chain game where all of the rules that govern um, your realms and how you like can you know build armies and the resource management and all these kind of things is all on chain. So you know I think the next thing that makes a lot of sense to experiment with in the in the Starknet ecosystem is the rules and the logic. There's not so much experimentation about putting like the assets like media and stuff fully on chain just yet. Uh, I think that maybe will come with different data availability solutions as as those are rolled out. Um, but yeah, it's very a lot of experimentation around like just the core logic that governs why an asset like makes sense for this ecosystem. And you touched on it, but I really wanted to drive this point home. So I want to talk about it a little bit more. What do we get when we put more of our games on chain? Like there's this vision of, of crypto gaming as like composable games where your items can transcend across games or your character can transcend across games. Like, game composability mm-hmm. when we put more and more of our game on chain whatever that logic may be what what kind of properties do we get out as a, resu- as a result of that yeah so i think it's like you described described like interoperability and composability are two big value propositions we've yet to like achieve like a great deal of that i think like a lot of that will come through some standardization in how games are built and represented on chain um and so we have an effort that we're working on with the Starknet community called Dojo to build out an on-chain gaming tool chain, like for developing smart contract or games on top of Starknet. And that, like, I think has the capability to standardize a lot of those primitives and allow for interoperability and composability much more easily. You get the hardness of the blockchain. So the, the guarantees that the things on it are going to exist as long as the blockchain will exist, right? And the blockchain gives you this, this property where anyone can um, can um, propagate the blockchain at some point in the future, right? Like if someone, 
if you if if no one is mining Bitcoin and you want Bitcoin to continue, you just mine it yourself, right? And the 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 the, the chain will continue propagating. So you can get that same property for a gaming universe, right? Today you might have a centralized publisher. You know, like the longest living games are like, you know, Warcraft, like franchises and, and Blizzard and stuff like that. But at some point, Blizzard's going to shut down the, the World of Warcraft servers or something, right? And if you, your options are kind of limited, especially now that servers, servers weren't designed to be run by anyone, right? Like in theory, they could like open source it and you would need probably like a DevOps team to like figure out like how to stand this stuff all up. Um, whereas like blockchain games are inherently designed to be like replicated for it to be like robust to this that anyone can continue propagating this universe if they're interested in it. I, I want to unpack that metaphor a little bit and and dive into that. So I've I've used um, Hearthstone, which okay. is a, another Blizzard game, uh, which is much like Magic: The Gathering for mm-hmm. people that are familiar with that. Uh, same kind of game. You you own cards and then you play them and like there's the and this is a, a server based and so unlike Magic: The Gathering, which is played in person. Hearthstone is played virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to Magic the Gathering, you buy cards. You yeah. buy cards from uh, from Blizzard, and then those go into your inventory, and then you battle other people. The problem with Hearthstone, and what was actually nice about Magic the Gathering, is that when you buy the cards, you actually own them mm-hmm. with Ma- in Magic the Gathering. In Hearthstone, when you buy the cards, it's just a database log. Yeah. And so if we want to go through this progression in, in Web3... Web th- the first phase of Web3 gaming is like, well, no, now you own your assets. Mm-hmm. And so like when you actually buy uh, Gauze Unchained is now this w- Web3 version of Hearthstone yeah. where you actually own the tokens as cards. And so then you can play the game, but you actually own the cards. The issue with that, though, is that the, there, there's still a server, there's still a client that mm-hmm. is needed to be maintained in order to play the game. So if the company behind Gauze Unchained goes down you can't play the game anymore yeah so it's great that you own your assets but you also need to own the game too exactly or otherwise like the the game itself will be rugged and all the reasons why you own the assets in the first place the utility just drops to zero i think it's a great comparison i think like really what you can say is like a lot of the properties that magic the gathering has by being like a physical item in the real world can now be given to digital games that live on the blockchain, right? Like, if you have a deck in Magic the Gathering, you can play it no matter what. No one can stop you, right? Like, as long as you have a deck of cards, you can play it with whoever you want. But you're also limited by the physical constraints of the real world. Yeah, you are. So, like, you don't have, like, you know, like... RNG or you can't play over the internet and stuff like that. Well, you could roll a dice, but, you know, but... (laughs) Um, but yeah, and like the, 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 the creator of the game, I mean, like from my understanding, I'm not big into Magic, Magic the Gathering, but there's like a formalized, um, like tournaments and stuff like that where they have stricter rules around like cards that are allowed and interpretations of them. But if you don't agree with that in Magic the Gathering, if you have the deck and you're just playing with your friend, you can make whatever rules up you want, right? And I think like that property, it doesn't exist in digital games, right? Like for example, if you're like, playing like let's say League of Legends or or Hearthstone or whatever and Bl- Blizzard or Riot decides to like nerf a card there's no way for you to opt out of that nerf to say like well I'm going to play with my friends and we like that card uh but like with the blockchain with a game that exists on the blockchain you have that optionality like you not only have this ability for players to be involved in that decision making to like potentially nerf nerf uh, an item which I think like will provide a lot of legitimacy a lot, in a lot of gaming ecosystems there's this idea of like this top down like decisions coming and nerfing things that like people get generally like, quite upset about 
And with the blockchain, you enable like this bottom up. Like if every all the players agree this is out of balance, then like let's balance it. And you also have this ability for like optionality, right? Like you can constrain the games in certain like in a certain mode while still allowing like other modes to exist in parallel or like other people to build different experiences that are slightly different. Like if you, you know, if, if, if there's a game of built on top of like the digital version of Hearthstone, uh, like a fully on-chain game, like there might be someone that says like, look, like the games, I think it could be better balanced like this and maybe we introduce these cards and they're free to like, you know, in, inherit like a lot of that, like the foundation of the original game and provide a new experience that's better on top of it without this like, you know, this worry that if you are competing with this original game that like there's like going to be some adverse consequence in the future. Okay, so I can, I'm pretty good at daydreaming. I'm pretty good at imagining things. I can imagine some sort of like, MMORPG that's as fully on chain as possible mm -hmm. and there's hundreds of thousands of people and they're all playing and it's all super fun um, but first we're at Starknet mm -hmm. we, what we got is Starknet there's also this thing called cartridge uh, but help us go from Starknet to a hundred thousand people playing this MMORPG what, we don't just get to skip there what are the necessary steps in order to get to that point like what are the base level infrastructure we need to enable something like that yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, we, we're decently far away from that. I think, like, <laughs> I think there's a, a tractable path to achieving it. Um, I think, like, one of the, the, the biggest gaps in the short term is just, like, standardization around, like, how games are represented on chain and building out tool chains that enables people to more easily build games on top of StarkNet in particular. Um, and that's like, you know, like, like taking learnings from the existing gaming industry. Like there's, you know, like standardized ways of representing games and patterns and architectures that people have used for a long time and have a, like a lot of inertia and that we can build on top of the, the, the blockchain. So there's something called like entity component systems, which is, you know, a lot of game engines, uh, use this to represent like what, what the state in a world and the state transitions of that world. And so that's something that we're building with Dojo is a, a fully on-chain, uh, a tool chain for building fully on-chain games that abstracts a lot of the semantics of like this, the smart contracts and all this stuff underneath and allows people to like very concisely and easily build games on top of StarkNet and take advantage of those properties without necessarily having to be exposed to like, you know, the, the, the rabbit hole that's usually necessary to understand like smart contract state model and stuff like this. So just making it much more accessible. So I think that's like, you know, one of the first steps uh, to enabling this. I think like, you know, once we have compelling games on top of StarkNet, you know, StarkNet itself is not is an exponential increase in compute available on top of Ethereum, but itself could not uh, manage the, the, the throughput necessary for a single, like, very well um, adopted game. And a lot of the constraints that StarkNet is optimized around is around, like, security and, and more, like, DeFi use cases. So I think, like, a, a logical next thing uh, is layer threes or, or, like, executing on the fractal scaling roadmap. So that's, like, layer three solutions that have properties that are more tuned to what a game needs. So, you know, like, in DeFi or in StarkNet, you probably want, like, decentralized sequencers, right? Because, like, you know, you're, you're, you're touching financialized assets and there's a lot of, you know, the, the adversarial model is very different. For an on-chain game, you're probably okay with, like, a 
a, a centralized sequencer with high throughput that's checkpointing to StarkNet, and that you can more easily exit to come back down to StarkNet if like the sequencer is not like propagating the world state like in a way that like the players want. Um, so I think like the next step is going to look like. Uh, centralized sequencers, layer 3 sequencers on top of StarkNet, tailored towards specific gaming universes um, that are just checkpointing to StarkNet. And then another uh, dimension that I think is, you know, uh, quite interesting is uh, client-side proving. And so the ability to compute, like, today you can do it actually in the StarkNet ecosystem. There's provers that you can compile to to Wasm and run uh, in your in your browser, there's a really exciting project called Sandstorm of someone working on this, and um, there's like some there's some standards coming out that's going to make it much more feasible to do in the browser as well uh, computationally, and like that gives you the property of of hidden information as well as uh, like this, you can generate these proofs on the client side that are very easy to verify. So you get like another layer of like exponential growth of compute available, and so I think like all of those things are you know probably going to have some kind of role um, in building this like future you know fully on chain game massive multiplayer online game um, as well as probably like state channels and different data availability solutions so really like we need to execute on the full like roadmap uh, to enable that like future it's like the abundance of compute and the full spectrum of trade-offs available uh, for things that want to live on the blockchain. So you, you said the word standard a lot and, um, going back and I, I kind of see this world of on-chain gaming following the same footsteps of DeFi, which is on-chain finance. Mm -hmm. But DeFi didn't come about until we had the ERC20 token standard. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden applications could start to reason about the assets inside of them. And that's, that standard uniformity of assets made it easy to have these assets be composable. Same thing with NFTs. We didn't have NFTs until we had the ERC721 standard. And so there seems to be this uh, inevitable hurdle that must overcome before an ecosystem arrives, which is the standardization hurdle, yeah. which I think that goes to what you're doing at, at Cartridge. Can you w walk us through what Cartridge is and how the idea of standardization is so important? Yeah, so at Cartridge, our goal is to accelerate the advent of on-chain gaming. So we're working on, you know, dogfooding. We're developing a few games ourselves and then solving a lot of the problems that we see in the ecosystem and working with the community to solve them. Uh, so initially, our focus has been um, on onboarding users, and we've built a solution for called the Cartridge Controller, which is, it deals with player interaction and identity, and leverages something called WebAuthn to use like the secure enclave in your device to uh, issue credentials and allow people to sign up for you know, and and start executing transactions on chain, which is a single click, like a face ID or a biometric finger scan. So that's like one of the things that we focused on like quite early on with Cartridge. Now with Cairo 1.0 maturing and the ability to like kind of start building up the the stack for on-chain games, the tool chain, um, we're working with the ecosystem, with the different the community of games like the Realms team, with Loaf and Silv at Brick, um, and a bunch of other like talented contributors um, like Annie and. Um, a, a few others uh, on building the Dojo toolchain, and the Dojo toolchain is really this idea of standardizing the primitives that people are using on chain to represent games. So it, it is an implementation of an ECS system, and it has like some cool properties of like verifiable client-side states and stuff like that that we've built into it. And it's already the, the, the nice thing about ECS systems is it's already a standard in traditional gaming, like the traditional gaming development, and so. 
um, it's not like we have to necessarily invent something new. We just need to build a way uh, to represent like ECS systems on top of StarkNet. And so that's what we're focusing on, like in the short term. And I think like that level of standardization is going to bring to your point, like the advent of, you know, powerful infrastructure built around it. So like once we have a standardized ECS system or way of representing state for games and the processes and the, the functions that change that state over time, you can start to build uh, powerful infrastructure that's like applies to all the games, right? And then if someone is building a game on StarkNet, they get all these things for free. It's like if you issue a token on Ethereum, you obviously do it on USC20 so you can put it on Uniswap, right? It's like, um, you know, like the equivalent, I, I guess like one, one way to think about it today is like the on-chain gaming ecosystem with NFTs today is like NFTs are interoperable in a, in a financialized sense that they can trade with each other, but it's not like interoperable in the sense that like you could the, the the properties of them are legible on chain and you can have functions and stuff like that so just like surfacing that level of interoperability is going to and standardizing it is going to enable this i think this future continuing with the progression of defi as a mental model idea um i've always been a fan of the idea that like uniswap is an individual defi app mm-hmm. and compound is also an individual defi app but these things also hook into each other exactly, yeah. and they're also hooked into Aave. And actually every single DeFi app that's on the same L1 is also really just one big structure because they're all interoperated with each other. So like instead of individual DeFi apps, there's actually just one big DeFi superstructure. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the composability of these systems. hundred percent. And I kind of think that's perhaps the way on-chain gaming also plays out as in like we have this one on-chain game and then we'll have a second on-chain game, but then they'll start to be like composability between these two things mm-hmm. and then a third on-chain game. And this all of a sudden, this is actually not just individual on-chain games, but actually StarkNet is the game. Yeah. And it's actually many, many, many games. It's Did you share game. this vision? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that meta, that like vision or metaphor expands just to life in general in a sense. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I think like that yeah, is the meta game. I mean, right now we're in the meta game of building games, right? And on-chain games on StarkNet. And it's a lot of fun because of, it's a great ecosystem to be in. It's like everyone, there's so many people that do this for fun. You know, that, I think that's like a, uh, a common attribute of people involved in the StarkNet ecosystem is they're here for like, like out of pure intellectual interest of like what is really on the bleeding edge. And it's like a game and it's fun for them. Right. Um, but yeah, I think definitely, I think like similar, like I think similar to like the evolution of DeFi. Um, on Ethereum, like the kind of the paradox, you know, like a lot of people say, you know, on-chain gaming is very early, but the, the, the games that are built today and the things that are built today are probably because they have this property that they can like pr- live on pr- perpetually. The, the stuff that's built in the next few years probably has the highest chance of being like the next big thing, right? So while it's so early and like like uh, hard to figure out like what it what are the paths we should go down or like what should we invest in? Like the when getting the right formula is going to be like, you know, like when Hayden was working on like um constant product markets and everyone like no one really like knew about them and then all of a sudden, you know, Uniswap is like the size of Coinbase. You know, so I feel like it's some Something similar will happen once we figure out something cool that players love, that people love to build on top of, that like it manages to attract a critical mass of of people modding it and building new experiences and like building sustainable like business models on top of of, of entertainment for players. Um, I think like 
it's it's coming soon and yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun so if we've piqued the interest of any of the listeners listening to this who do you need the most help from who could you uh get the most uh, assistance from out of any of these listeners what kind of what kind of uh developers what kind of developers who do you need help from yeah i mean i think like the ecosystem could use with just a lot of experimentation and we're seeing it there's like a, you know a lot of different pockets of people building different on-chain games ex- and different experiences with different constraints some on you know ethereum mainnet some on polygon i think it's like important for people to continue experimenting with those and for people that are interested in the space to to try them out and and, and like provide feedback and 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 be a, a part of that feedback loop i think like there's a large contingent of like the traditional gaming industry that um, is is very hesitant on blockchain technology because of the financialized properties of it. But I think like there's a lot of properties that the blockchain can enable for games that any game developer would want. I mean, if you're building a game in like a traditional game, especially if it's a game that fits into the constraints of the blockchain, like something that's turn-based um, and has like shared state and, and and potentially like adversarial models and stuff like that, like. It would be significantly easier to build a turn-based game as a developer on top of something like StarkNet once the infrastructure is solid than to build out like and manage that whole backend yourself, right? You get to start experimenting, like, like you get a, a lot more leverage being able to take advantage of all these other pieces outside of the financialized component of things. So I think like having, bringing those people that are familiar with traditional gaming, uh, the industry and game development into the blockchain space and getting them excited to take advantage of these properties outside of the financialized stuff, which, you know, it can, it can you know, leave a lot of a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth. I think that is going to be critical to, to building like, you know, like this, the, the future that you talked about of like a, a massive, like triple A quality, uh, MMO RPG online game that's, uh, fully owned by the players and, it has these like properties of 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 um, composability and interoperability and actually just being like something competitive with what a studio like a centralized studio with a billion dollars can do today yeah well Terrence, I hope we've uh, piqued the interest of many 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 bankless listeners and made them optimistic about the future of on-chain gaming so thank you for helping me tell that story awesome thanks for having me yeah and if anyone uh, wants to chat about it or, or get involved in the ecosystem feel free to reach out. Um, on Twitter or, or join the Discord and, um, or just find me around. Uh, what's the website? Uh, cartridge.gg. Awesome. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you. Cheers. In this interview, we are talking to Ignoyama, Omer from Ignoyama. Ignoyama is an interesting product where most things that we talk about on Bankless are on-chain. We're actually talking about hardware in this episode. ZK proofs are computationally intensive, especially for CPUs. So Ignoyama is working on building chips, uh, which are, are just, you know, ASICs, uh, first FGPAs, and, and then ASICs later, to help speed up the prover set of ZK proofs. Uh, and so while ZK uh, proofs are computationally intensive, we still want the ability for anyone to run those p- proofs. Uh, and so the bull case for Ignayama is to put a bunch of ZK prover chips in all of the hardware and devices that we use in this world. Uh, disclosure, Ryan and I are actual investors in to Ignoyama. So we have exposure to what Omer is building here. But the thesis is that self-sovereign ZK technologies are going to be so proliferated and we need ZK provers to be equally as democratized and accessible so that individuals can 
confirm their own ZK proofs, that the fact that ZK rollups and other ZK technologies are valid. When we have chips that are specialized for this, uh, we can extend this out to more and more people. It's highly aligned with the bankless philosophy. So that's why we are investors. I hope you enjoy this interview with Omer. But first, a moment to talk to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless Nation, once again, we are here at the Starkware Sessions in Tel Aviv, and I'm here with Omer of Ingoyama. And Ingoyama is doing something quite interesting that you might uh, not be familiar with. Uh, Omer, can you kind of walk us through why we need Ingoyama? So, like every successful technology in history, um, we can say that there are three pillars to this technology. We have the software, the algorithms, and the hardware. So, zero knowledge, which is um, a core technology in our space, it's basically um, a cornerstone for uh, trustless computing, which is uh, what we need for decentralization. It's such, it's just such a, uh, a technology, and we want to make it successful. We want to make it mainstream. We want to make it at the hands of everybody. So, out of these three pillars, basically, what we do is we are taking care of the hardware. And so, this is the hardware, as in uh, once upon a time, bank, the bankization will know. I got into the world of Ethereum through GPU mining. There's also the world of ASICs proof of work. How does, and this is the same sort of subject matter, but as it relates to zero knowledge computation, how does this, how is this world uh, similar to the proof of work industry and how is it also different? Right. So, uh, dynamics, uh, can be very, uh, there are similarities, but I think one step before we need to understand what exactly is, uh, the connection or what do we need hardware for zero knowledge? And specifically, you know, zero knowledge, uh, it's been around like decades in academia and only recently over the last three years, it's doing the transition into, um, into industry. And, uh, we chose in the space with, uh, represented, represented by many companies, what we chose is to focus on very specific type of zero-knowledge provers. Uh, you might have heard about Snarks, Starks, and companies such as zero-knowledge roll-ups, right? And basically, they have some very interesting properties, this type of zero-knowledge systems. Uh, one of them is that the proof is very small. Um, and the other thing is that it's publicly verifiable, okay? So before you even go into explaining what zero-knowledge is and why do we need it, uh, just in terms of like the analogy here, to proof of work, what we see is that there is kind of like a trade-off because we gain all of these like very nice properties, but we need to pay somewhere. And where we need to pay is by computing this proof. So it roughly takes seven orders of magnitude more than the computation itself to actually compute the proof. Once you have the proof, you have a lot of power, right? But to get to this point, you need to spend a lot of money and compute power. This is where hardware can um, uh, can make a big difference. You know, it's still going to be seven orders of magnitude, more computation. But uh, the effect that you, or what you'll feel in terms of um, uh, the cost and, uh, and and the time that it takes you, we aim to make it as, uh, as simple as possible, obviously, but also as close as possible to the user experience and developer experience that we have by just running the computation. Now... What it means is that, uh, you know, as I said, trustless computing and zero knowledge can uh, can mean many things. There are definitely few applications that we see today that are touching or try to replace exactly uh, the old mechanism of proof of work by something that's based on zero knowledge. There are huge advantages of doing so, but this is far from being the only use case. So I think that right now we are talking about level that is way uh, lower, uh, somewhat lower than uh, the actual proof of work uh, type of uh, or mining that we had in the space, 
but it's definitely involved. It has some kind of uh, relations to it. For example, you can build something similar to a proof-of-work mechanism based on zero knowledge. Of course, with many benefits that I, I can go over. So it's been part of the trajectory of much of Ethereum to actually get rid of hardware. Like we want to get proof of stake because we don't have, we don't want to have proof of work miners. But there's a dynamic here about zero knowledge computations, which also is part of the broad Ethereum roadmap where we want like ZK rollups with zero knowledge proofs and other reasons to apply zero knowledge technology to what we're doing here, which means that are we committing to some sort of hardware layer to the Ethereum future because of just the, the commitment to zero knowledge? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. And I think that um, to understand it or to answer it first, I do need to explain why ZK, zero knowledge, is useful in the context of Ethereum. So let me just take two like big ideas. One is scaling, the other is privacy. Now in scaling, what zero knowledge basically is doing is kind of compressing, right? I mean, it, it just like trying to simplify it a bit. We try to compress many uh, transactions that uh, we just don't have enough room for put them on chain. So we put only the proof and it's verifiable computation. Everything should be fine. In a way, we are saving a lot of money by doing so, right? Um, the end goal is to have to have it in, in a full decentralized manner, right? We, you don't want people to actually or to create this kind of um, um, market around uh, or this kind of dynamics where you actually need uh, or it's open only for certain type of, of actors. You want to enable anybody to obviously verify a proof. This is like definitely uh, super cheap and, and efficient. As I said, these the properties of these like snark stocks that we chose. But you also want the proving uh, and computing the proof to be done basically by anyone on, on even commodity hardware uh, or close to it, such as GPUs. So this is just, when it comes to scaling, I don't think that we are committing in a way to um, to a future where we actually need to pay more mm-hmm. or to um, consume much more electricity. I think it would save us much more than... Um, uh, then in, in terms of uh, when you try to compare it to, uh, to to what we know until now privacy this is this is you know this is like an application this is like another thing that we can gain that um, was not accessible to us before privacy at scale privacy on chain privacy as a layer two uh, I think it's it's kind of an application that zero knowledge is bringing and of course you need to consider the cost of such an application. Uh, personally, I think it's 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 a rightful cause, and uh, would pay for you know uh, a future that is, is is really great. And it's worth to kind of put some effort into it in terms of computation. Long term thinking, again, this hardware is going to be in your I don't know your iPhone. So part of the chip would run ZK. It would be seamless, right? Uh, it would be very efficient and so on. So again, I don't think it's going to go into committing to uh, where we were going for where we were coming from, and and. Uh, you know, ruining this proof of work to proof of stake um, transition. So um, the idea that that I have for the the future of Ethereum, and actually even baked into the Ethereum roadmap, is to zk the whole entire blockchain. But then there's like applications that can use zk tough, and there's other layer twos that can use zk stuff. All of this, all any time a zero knowledge is executed upon, that's a computation that needs to be run. Where are we today? Like, how is that computation being done today? And in, with the, the future that you have in mind, how will it be done in the future? Right. Um, so, yeah, that's true. ZK um, is very powerful. 
and it can find uh, use cases in many places. And obviously, all of Layer 2, ZK rollups, and I think also at some point, um, optimistic, optimistic rollups would, um, would start using this technology to some extent. Uh, so we are talking, if you try to sketch like a graph of the number of proofs per unit of time, so what I think we'd see is that now it's growing and it's keep growing, uh, which is, which is very interesting. And, and at some point, you know, it will consume kind of a lot of, a lot of electricity. As you said, any application that is building, being built on top of a rollup eventually would require to um, verify it on chain, and it means another proof that needs to run. Not only that, you want, you know, for um, uh, you want to often to run the same proof more than once, so that in case something happens to one of the prover, you have like a backup, right? Um, so it can it can scale definitely. There are other type of um, uh, ideas that are counter to that scaling, which are, for example, recur- uh, kind of packing more than one proof uh, together. So because basically you are proving a computation, you can also prove another another proof, right? So you can just stack them up in some kind of a recur- recursive manner. And this kind of saves you a lot of the trouble. This is a lot of what we see today in ZK rollups, um, how they moved, like Starkware, for example, moved into uh, uh, using recursion, which allows you not only to stack proofs one onto another and eventually end up just with one proof, it also makes these proofs way smaller, right? Because you can just, like, aggregate them together. And so this is kind of counter-trend to the growing need in um, in proofs, right? What will happen is that with the introduction of hardware, getting these proofs going to be the, 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 the threshold or the barrier to get this, like, very complex proof uh, and computation will just get lower and lower. And usually... Just like with other inventions, what it means is that there would be more and more use cases using these proofs. So I think that overall, uh, we're just seeing increase in the number of proofs, but definitely it would be uh, contained. It would be contained at the hardware level. It would be contained in the algorithmic level in a way that would be manageable. And for us as a community, it would uh, eventually be a net positive. So to use a metaphor, would you say it's fair to say that uh, Ingoyama is trying to build the engines to run zero-knowledge computation? Like you're building the combustion engine for zero-knowledge? Yeah, kind of. I mean, we are building computers. Like, you know, you can look at the uh, traditional computer architecture and something is missing. I mean, something that, like, you know, a finite field arithmetic, some discrete math, like the the stuff that that are are the fundamental in the computer uh, architecture is is not really accelerated. It's not used in in AI, network storage acceleration, but it is needed in cryptography, even not just zero knowledge, fully homomorphic encryption, um, and and even you know lattices and such like basic the, the basics of of post quantum cryptography. Everything is built on the same math. We are just trying to bring uh, a modern type of computer architecture that will support natively this type of um, uh, computations. So is the idea that uh, what you just said that. Uh, we have this new thing in this world called zero-knowledge proofs. They're computationally intensi- intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, is a future state of the world one where there is a new component, a new hardware component in perhaps every single device out there, my phone, my computer, my laptop, that is specialized to run a zero-knowledge proof? Is that is that kind of the future that we're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and uh, we also can, can tell, you know, it's going to start from more of the server side, like the data centers, this is where it's easier to kind of take a whole new computer architecture and just like uh, push it and then get some uh, uh, get some optimizations in, in running ZK. 
uh, provers. But uh, and you know, phones they are like very the phone factor very small. It's going to be very hard. Right. But let's say decentralized identity. All right, this is something that we know. Um, several like phone uh, vendors, manufacturers are looking very deeply into. So this will require some of these functions, like some IP calls that are relevant to the border, like ZK computation, but they can also fit inside like chips that are being manufactured by others. Um, also, you know, when it comes to privacy, eventually you need it in your hand. You need, right. you need full control. So that's definitely going to be like in every one of our hands in phones and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, I know uh, one of the big conversations that's going out here at the Starkware sessions is um, account abstraction and how account abstraction uses the secure enclave of a phone to store data, to unlock, you know, assurances about a private key. And so there's already the conversation happening about how does our physical hardware impact the technology that we have in the virtual space, right? Like, right. even though we're all love to be in the metaverse, the physical nature of our hardware is still very, very important. And so maybe um, another to use another metaphor is like we have this secure enclave to store private keys, and that's a physical component of our devices that help us do our crypto things and then what you're uh, perhaps envisioning is that there's also going to be another additional part of the hardware that is meant to, to do zero-knowledge computation to allow for zero-knowledge computation to be done by the individual on their device. Is that, is that all line up with you? Yeah, I think I think it does. Uh, like, when I look at the future in a world where ZK is cheap, I mean, there's no reason why you cannot just verify any computation you do. I mean, the entire, everything you run on the phone, including communication with secure enclave and so on, can be verifiable, right? You can also output a proof that the computation was done correctly. It's even more important once you outsource the computation to someone else, uh, I don't know, to the cloud. Everything can be uh, verifiable, and it should, right? Um, so I think, yeah, I think we are talking here about kind of... Uh, a new modern type of architecture that will also include a component that is specialized for this type of cryptography. Yeah, and and if we don't have this kind of research and this kind of like R and D effort that you that you're you're doing, then we probably ultimately outsource that proof generation to a third party, which is not exactly what we're going for in this world of self sovereign like technology. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, it is. I mean there's a, an ongoing research on how you can actually separate the compute intensive part from the privacy uh, preserving part of the computation. It's not easy. There are a few ideas. Uh, and, and it's, you know, right now it seems very far away. So I think definitely uh, a way to go is to try and get everything done on the hardware locally. And it's a future. It will take a lot of time, but we'll get there. Meanwhile, there are many use cases and applications that can still run uh, only on data centers, uh, by miners and, you know, uh, some people and, and corporates that have access to this, like, um, to this, like, specialized hardware. That's, that's for sure. But yeah, we are going into the, um, this, like, future where there's, uh, ASICs that are, like, different chips that can be used in any type of, um, computing device and can bring you this, uh, uh, technology to the level that, again, user experience is going to be completely seamless. You won't feel that you are computing a proof. So maybe uh, we can really judge about how trustless and self-sovereign the world is with how many, how far your chips have proliferated across the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's one way to look at it. Um, again, remember that right now, even the the rollups, the ZK rollups, mm -hmm. all of them are um, more or less centralized. Sure. Um, so there's still a uh, far way to go. We still need to, uh, uh, and and you know, we are a hardware place, so we are long-term thinkers. This is how we are building the company. Um, yeah, I mean, 
at some point, I do hope that uh, many of us would have this uh, freedom of just you no know, verifiable and private type of computer privacy preserving computation, verifiable computation. It will take time until it right. will get basically to be democratized and be by the hands of anybody. Yeah. Sure. So the, the topic of hardware is not one that we've actually talked a lot about on Bankless, and so this is probably striking the imaginations of uh, a set of Bankless listeners that doesn't previously get a bunch of attention. Uh, walk us through the roadmap for like how a chip actually gets produced, and what what is the roadmap for for Ignayama? Right. Um, so the first thing to understand about us is that we are not religious about hardware, meaning that you know uh, there are a few types of specialized hardware with differences. I can name a few FPGAs, GPUs, um, and, and of course ASICs, like these like specialized chips. For us, it's about finding where is the pain and then solving it. And when I say solve it, it's about uh, catering for, for the little guy. Again, we want to make the user experience dis- seamless. Uh, that's the goal, that's the ideal. And what it means is that uh, right now, in terms of roadmap, we are doing a lot of R&D internally uh, to kind of build our um, uh, hardware and, and our IP to run everything. What we want to do is basically run everything inside of this like specialized hardware. And then we try to feed the right solution to, um, to the right problem, right? So uh, you can think about, let, let's take Starkware, right? We are in, in, in a Starkware event. Let's take Starkware, for example. So for Starkware right now, the prover is centralized. Uh, it's one problem. It's not the most important problem they have. They have also a problem with witness generation, with sequencer. They pay much more on getting uh, the transaction on chain for fees than they pay on running the prover. So when we're talking with Starkware and we want to develop hardware, what we basically try to do at this point is just to move the bottleneck from the prover to somewhere else in the system. Okay. Now, at some point, these other places in the system would also have their bottleneck removed. The only bottleneck that I predict will remain would be the hardware for ZK provers and maybe, you know, a bit beyond. But um, right now it's just about being efficient enough and cost-effective enough to move this bottleneck someplace else in the system. That's one example. Obviously, we have projects where we want to optimize on the throughput, right? We want to run as many proofs at the same time, and we less care, and we don't really care about the cost, let's say. There are other projects where we care just about the form factor. We have a project, by the way, for, uh, um, for Filecoin, where it's mostly about just replacing GPUs with FPGAs that are tiny, right? It's like small, it fits a data center. So it really depends. Overall, our vision is, and I think this is the long-term solution, is to have these dedicated chips. And to go to this place, we need a lot of, uh, we first need to come up with an architecture, something very similar to a GPU, if you try to think about it, like many, many cores that run in parallel, but are suitable to the type of computation that uh, you can see in zero knowledge. And once we have this figured out, remember that ZK, and this is probably a question many ask, is it's a, it's a fast-moving uh, space, right? Everything is kind of changing. How do we de-risk it when we build something that is meant to last for um, many years to come? And one way that we try to do it is by basically um, b- building it in a programmable way. That's one thing. And the other thing is to battle test it all the time, right? So every time there's a new ZK protocol primitive coming out from academia even, we try to kind of re-team it and see if we can support it and to what extent. And then we fine-tune our design. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to go to a tape-out, which is 
to your question, kind of the no return point where you kind of say, okay, this goes and when it gets back, it's in silicon, then it goes into, I don't know, miners and whoever needs it. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to go to this, uh, to tape out, uh, soon, meaning when I'm saying soon, it still mean like, you know, can be in a couple of years. Um, and it's really going to depend on how this market is going to evolve. We first want to target roll-ups, ZK roll-ups, and therefore we are very much dependent on their decentralization efforts, and we try our best also to to help with what we can. Omer, uh, if somebody is interested by what you are doing, what you've talked about here today, uh, how can they join? How can they help? What? Who do you need help from, or how can people get involved? Um, right, so at this point, we do mostly R&D. Um, my team, uh, they are a bunch of very talented uh, cryptographers, mathematicians, and hardware guys, like chip designers, uh, architects, uh, and so on. We are trying to build um, an ecosystem in software. What we're going to do soon is going to open source much of what we do. Hardware is traditionally a very closed source type of environment. This is not good for our space. We try to break this narrative. We try to go and be and walk in the open, be transparent, and also put some code and IP out there for people to use and play. Feedback is critical from developers mostly that are going to build on ZK. Any type of application, everything is is applicable. Um, you can find us in Twitter, Ingo, um, uh, ZK. We have a website we launched not long ago in gonyama.com. Uh, we have a GitHub with all, with all of our stuff open. We have a Discord that soon we're going to uh, uh, launch it officially. Right now, if you are uh, working on some technical problem and want to join the Discord, meet the team. This is a very good place. Reach out to me and I'll be able to connect you with, uh, with the team. Omar, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers.